Hello, and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. This week, we are very fortunate to have Andy Stern as our guest. Andy Stern was the president of the SEIU, probably America's most powerful union, for 14 years. He is currently a senior fellow at Columbia University, and he is the author of several books, most recently, Raising the Floor, How a Universal Basic Income Can Renew Our Economy and Rebuild the American Dream. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thank you. First, uh, why don't you, you tell us a little bit about how you heard about the basic income and, and what compelled you to the idea? So I'm probably a little embarrassed to admit that if you had asked me this question three years ago, I wouldn't have known what basic income was. I spent most of my life trying to somewhat create a basic income for janitors, home care, child care, security officers, nursing home workers through, you know, what unions always do, which is collective bargaining. And, you know, the idea of using government to change the social safety net or to end poverty was not kind of first priority. And, you know, after having a very, you know, wonderful opportunity for 38 years to be the leader, be a member and leader of SEIU, it became clear to me that despite all of the union's good work and the members' good work, you know, we now found ourselves where inequality was increasing, uh, where wages were falling, where the number of workers in unions had dropped dramatically, and that you know we all could keep just working harder, but we needed to take take a grip on what was really going on that seemed to be much bigger than what we were talking about in our country. And so I just felt I couldn't keep leading an organization if I didn't know exactly where to take it anymore. And so I quit, began this journey that ended up you know, realizing that something was very big was happening in the economy and that basic income actually may be the answer. Yeah. And, and you, you talk about this a lot in your book, of course, how uh, it's not just that you're, you're losing the battle, but the, the war goes on. It's that there are structural changes in the economy that are making it harder for Americans that work hard and play by the rules to, to get by and to have a comfortable retirement. Uh, could you describe some of those structural changes for us? Yeah, I mean, if you think about, you know, my and my father's economy, you know, we basically held one job. It was employer managed. The employer managed my health care, my retirement, my training, my career, where I worked, what time I worked. You know, and if I did a good job, I made it to the end of the line and got a watch and a retirement party. And that was my work life. And, you know, the work life today of my son and many other young people on average is they're going to have nine to 12 jobs by the time they're 35, that even if they want to stay with their employer, you know, only 20 to 25 percent of the employers that exist today will be economically relevant in 20 years, uh, that people are trying to figure out their own way to, to get health care and retirement and paid leave and training. And so it's much more self-managed on one hand. That's one big difference. Two is all the growth in the economy is not happening in the traditional 40-hour-a-week employer-managed economy. In fact, it's all in the, you know, what people would call the contingent part-time staffing, freelancer, entrepreneur platform economy. And so the growth is away from, not towards, uh, the 20th century economy, one-job situation. And finally, the market, you know, used to do a much better job of, you know, when you had GDP growth and productivity growth, you got wage growth and job growth. And by the end of the 20th century, we knew actually the economy could grow, 
but you could get no wage growth, which is what we've seen for the last 20 years. Now in the 21st century, we're learning you can have growth in both productivity and GDP and not have not just wage growth, but you cannot, you can also not have any job growth. And that's what we're experiencing today. So this is very structurally different than the economy. And therefore, the solutions are going to have to be fundamentally different as well. And toward that last point, how you can ha- how the economy can grow without um, lower and middle income workers really seeing any of it uh, is that a loss of political power, or is is it something even deeper than that? Well, there were three things, three mechanisms that we used to share success in our country when a company had done well. One was the market, you know, and the market did share better with workers and managers. And the rate, the ratio between worker pay and CEO pay was a lot different. Two was unions. And Ben Bernanke, you know, said that about a quarter of the inequality is that workers don't have enough power now to bargain, you know, with major employers to get their fair share of what the, of the wealth they create. And the third was government. You know, and for a long time, government was on the sidelines when it came to workers. They just let the market and unions occasionally do things. But now we see that unions aren't working, the market's not working, and so that's why people are spending appropriately so much time fighting for 15 or getting governments to give paid leave or sick leave or deal with college education because, you know— the political power of unions, the power of people is being trumped by the power of technology and the power of big companies. Right. And in the past, maybe the unions would just bargain directly with their with their employers. And, and now we're kind of trying to go around that and, and work with the government directly. Yeah. Um, unions used to bargain for members only. Mm-hmm. Now unions are bargained for everyone. Right. Huh. So in your book, at one point, you kind of take the executive's perspective and you you interview, you have some very interesting interviews with executives who talk about how, you know, one, often software or part-time workers are a lot cheaper. Um, They, software at least, is not going to one day decide it wants to intentionally harm your company or it's not going to get sick and, you know, go off of work for, for a couple weeks. And you, you had one fascinating one where an executive said, you know, if I have 100 employees, human, those, those are animals. You know, human beings are animals. And I mean, they're taking care of 100 of, animals. Head of Foxconn in China, you know? yeah. And uh, so how do those comments strike you as someone who has, has spent the bulk of his career uh, fighting for workers' rights? So one is I think you need to think just about the inevitable way that technology and change has always worked and where lots of forces have tried to create friction and slow it down. It's never been really successful ultimately in not having progress occur. I mean, you and I choose to, to communicate through Skype. You know, we could travel and meet together. We could, which, you know, would have required planes and trains. You know, we could have written each other letters, but there's a lot more efficiency on being able to talk to each other face-to-face, and that's why we use Skype. Mm-hmm. You know, for companies, whether we like it or not, you know, to have people who can make mistakes on an assembly line, you know, is a lot less efficient than having a robot that never makes a mistake and never gets sick and can work 24-7. And the same thing's true with an autonomous vehicle versus a person. So I just think some of these changes you know, are about efficiency. They're not about getting rid of workers as their intentions. 
But the ultimate impact is that people are getting screwed. I mean, people are losing jobs, losing wages, losing benefits, and there isn't a big enough force on the other side in terms of workers' organizations or rules of the economy that would force you know, corporations to share more through stock options or profit sharing or equity ownership. And so we're just redistributing wealth upwards, you know, and it makes me mad because people are working just as hard. They're going to college. They're doing what everybody told them they were supposed to do, and they're poor. So you, you've uh, had, to, to say the least, some major policy successes in, in your career as, as an advocate, um, most notably, uh, perhaps most notably, um, you were a, a big force behind the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare right. in 2010. Um, so in th- the basic income is at least as big a policy lift as that. It's um, um, How would you chart out a course for, uh, one, getting this movement some exposure, but two, actually creating and passing policy in the United States? So, you know, I, I was young enough to live through Hillary Clinton's first attempt in 1993 to pass health care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it became, after it failed, no one wanted to talk about health care because it was such bad politics. And what eventually happened is that odd coalitions began to spring up, some about, you know, coalitions between odd policy people, some between Walmart and SEIU and Intel and CWA, you know, some around equity, health equity, some about particular diseases. But all of a sudden, you had an odd group of people all pushing in a generally same direction. So, A, I think that's the real opportunity here. We should not make this a left or a right issue. Mm-hmm. You know, we should make this an American issue. And I think, you know, that is where this makes this issue different than almost every other major issue that I think the country is trying to address right now, where people are incredibly polarized. Two is I think you, there are, there's a bite of this that you need to take first. And this I'm just mulling this over, but I'd love to hear the feedback sure. from people who are listening to the podcast to yourself, which I think is children. Because the biggest issue around ending poverty through a universal basic income or providing opportunity through a universal basic income is we're giving people something for nothing. Well, when it comes to children, as we've seen in Canada with Justin Trudeau, you know, no one thinks children are supposed to work. And everyone knows that particularly zero to five, when there is no public education or public schools, there's a huge difference between what happens to middle and upper middle class kids and what happens to kids who are born into poorer families. So I think you know, as Justin Trudeau did in Canada, I think there are a lot of forces aligning, unusual forces to say, let's start with children and then move up the age cohort, however you want to do it. So I think that's the second thing is trying to take a big bite, not a little bite, you know, but a big bite out of the the problem. And the third is I think we happen to be fortunate enough that the world is coming in the direction of basic income. You know, when you have 50 million people in poverty, despite all our anti-poverty programs, no one's going to say it's really working effectively. You know, universal basic income, at least statistically, has the ability very quickly uh, to end all poverty in America once and for all. It's simple. You know, it doesn't take a lot of bureaucracy to accomplish. So I think, you know, we have to keep, as they did with Social Security and the towns and clubs, organizing all the time. And I think we need to take some big bites, but I think we also need to understand that technology and the displacement of white-collar workers and college kids is going to create a much more accelerated desire to find an answer than we might otherwise find if it was just poor people. 
And yet, just uh, on on that point about 50 million people in poverty, despite however many billions we're spending on anti-poverty programs, what are we doing wrong? Well, I think I think what we're doing wrong is actually what Martin Luther King said in you know 1968 in his last book or 67, which was called From Chaos to Community, which was we asked to end poverty. We didn't ask for a housing program. We didn't ask for a food stamp program, a welfare program, uh, you know, whatever all the programs we've now created. We wanted to add poverty, and if you want to end poverty, give people money. And I think what we decided was that poor people were not responsible. You know, should not make their own choices and that we should construct this system, which also helps the housing industry, helps agribusiness, you know, helps uh, union bureaucracies, you know, that that gives poor people, you know, a, a series of programs that they have to piece together with all kinds of rules and regulations that are somewhat dehumanizing, you know, and that's how we're going to end poverty. And I think you know, we're sort of going back to the Martin Luther King, but also the Milton Friedman era, which was, oh, if you want to end poverty, give people money. That's how you end poverty. So just to, to drill down on that a little bit, would you say that some of the political issue is that when you give poor people or give everyone money, those people benefit and the whatever other benefits there are are, you know, secondary, whereas if you create a, a system that involves jumping through hoops and working with specific organizations, uh, those organizations benefit and specific industries benefit, and therefore there's some political leverage there. Well, I think, you know, yes, but I don't think some of the organizations are really sinister. I think they're very suspicious that if you had a uh, basic income, people would come out as head in some of the areas they're working on, whether it's housing or quality food. So they think, no, let's keep this categorical siloed and let's just work on to fix ours because if we can fix ours then we know people have better food or they'll have better housing and you know that's a a a legitimate philosophy done by people who really work in poor communities and work really hard but i just think in the end if the real goal here is to end poverty and give people dignity you know then just give them money without strings attached and not just poor people but middle class and other people as well uh, you mentioned that the basic income was a foreign idea to you three years ago, and I think you are hardly alone in that. Would you say that the idea of the basic income has penetrated into the labor movement? Yeah, I think a lot, honestly, because myself and some union leaders in Europe and now the British version of the AFL-CIO have all become actively involved in pushing for basic income. Yeah, so I think it's you know, not yet at all in, involved with people's kind of core beliefs. They're still, and I think for good reason, working on fight for 15 or paid family leave or scheduling. So I think they're all doing good things, but I think they're beginning to understand that, you know, if you're the Teamsters Union, you see driverless trucks, you know, or if you're the retail and food workers and you see Amazon and Amazon Fresh, you begin to wonder, you know, what's the lifespan of the work for the workers that we represent. So I think it's beginning to at least come in. And and honestly, Bob Reich and Joe Stiglitz and people of that kind of stature who have always sort of been on the right side of economic justice, you know, standing up for it, Black Lives Matter has endorsed it, mm-hmm. you know, gives the labor movement a lot more comfort. This isn't some, you know, crazy left-right, you know, odd conspiracy, but this is actually a, a, a potential way to solve a very big problem. Mm-hmm. And 
where so so you just mentioned some of the places you're seeing support so are there other places you're seeing support for the basic income and also are there areas where you're seeing pushback so i mean the biggest pushback comes from traditional economists you know and traditional uh, people who are involved in the welfare system who are scared of disruption because it may get worse uh, you know and the traditional economists want to tell you which they're right that you know every time we've had an economic revolution, so to speak. There's been more jobs after than there were before. Mm-hmm. But I also said to people today at a, who are educators, you know, when I went to school, I think Pluto was a planet and now it isn't. <laughs> you know, there was, the world was flat until it was round. You know, we've never had the kind of temperatures we've had on Earth, you know, in modern history. So sometimes things really do change. But more importantly, we don't actually have to make, uh, we don't have to win a debate. We just have to create a scenario that's able to take care of people. So I think, you know, people who, you know, just like the status quo because they do quite well in it. And I think, you know, the support is growing from people who believe in the President of the United States in an interview in Wired magazine, you know, yeah. who at first was asked by Bloomberg News about basic income, which was the first time any president's ever been asked the question. And then secondly, when asked about it in an interview with the uh, Um, Wired Magazine said, you know, things are changing. We're going to have to rethink the safety net and we have to consider basic income. So, you know, in the elite circles or in the policy circles, and I give Justin Trudeau, for instance, a lot of credit in North America, whose father and now he are, you know, willing to experiment. And I think it's beginning to penetrate, you know, dramatically faster at the policy level and that the, you know, the exponential increase in technological change, Uber, driverless cars on the roads, you know, in Pittsburgh today, auto delivering, you know, beer in a driverless truck, you know, is beginning to make people think like, you know, oh, my God, something really is happening that we have to look at differently. So I think support is beginning to grow. And I think the libertarian support is even beginning to grow, which I think is enormously helpful for the discussion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> I have to ask, so re- reading your, your book, I, I kind of alternated between hope and despair where, you know, there, it's, it's easy to feel like, you know, the, the robots aren't just coming, they're already here. And all these systems where it's very easy to just get someone to do one job for one hour instead of having an employee who you then have to take care of, those are already very much in place. When, when you think about kind of the economy now and the the basic income movement and are are you hopeful for the future? Yeah, I'm hopeful for for I think a couple of reasons. You know, one is that I think people are getting very aware that the old solutions go to college, let the market work, more entrepreneurial activity, infrastructure, unions, you know, have a short shelf life. You know, they're good for some people, but they're not big enough to solve the tsunami of technological disruption. So I think there's kind of an awakening. And, you know, again, I see President Obama, Justin Trudeau, you know, willing to admit that we have a big problem. The IMF, the World Bank uh, last week came out and said that I I think like 77 percent of the jobs in China are at risk, 82 percent in India. So this thing is is growing big in terms of reputable research from people that are generally listened to by business and government saying that something big has happened. So I think we're finally getting our arms and uh, around the fact there's a problem. You know, two is I think it's an enormous opportunity because technology has the ability to sort of, you know, give people access to 
to art and music and people all over the world in a way that, you know, elites were the only ones who at one time could go to the Louvre or, you know, engage in, you know, uh, cross-continental conversations or, you know, so I think, you know, there is an enormous opportunity for culturally and uh, knowledge-wise for equalization around the world. And I think for the United States, you know, the advantage we have is we don't have a wealth problem. We just have a distribution problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's more wealth in the U.S. than there ever was at any time in history. If this was a Harvard Business School case and you said, so here's the problem. One-tenth of one percent, you know, have 30 percent of the wealth and 50 percent of the people have no wealth. What do we do? You know, that would take about 20 minutes and a calculator you right. know, to figure out the 20 policies we could implement to redistribute you know, the wealth. So I think we have a redistribution problem, not a wealth problem, which may be different than China and India and other countries. And the wealth really isn't an income either. So, you know, this idea of let's just tax the rich, not that I'm against it, but I don't think there's enough money in it. Mm -hmm. It really is that, you know, assets in companies and assets in individuals, you know, that are just too maldistributed to a very small number of people. And I don't think that's a, it's a, complicated political problem, but it's not a complicated economic problem. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, well, I, I've, I've asked everything I was planning to ask. I was just wondering if you have anything else you want to add on anything we talked about or anything else. Well, first, I, I just want to say to people like you who've been in this movement well before me, I'm a, I'm a Johnny-come-lately, and I'm glad I can make my contribution. But this is really you know, an organizing project that I think is... Uh, for all of you who sort of plowed the fields, I think it's beginning to, to grow the crops. And so just I admire what all of you have done to sort of stick with this issue, make this issue. And I think you're about to catch a wave, you know, that is, is going to be good. And two, I think this is about organizing. I mean, I think you're absolutely right when you say there are two different paths ahead. One's very helpful because there's an abundance of wealth and abundance of knowledge that can be shared very differently. And the other is the Hunger Games, hmm. you know, where a small group of people in the center, you know, hold all the wealth and the people in the regions get to compete. And every once in a while, someone escapes. And, you know, I think that's why organizing matters and you know, trying to be respectful that this isn't a left issue or a right issue. It's an American issue. And, you know, I just think that the time has come to take this to the new, next level. I, I happen to believe children is a really good place to start for lots of different reasons, but it may be true that there are other better ways to start. But the key now is to keep the conversation going and keep organizing. And so I appreciate the time on your podcast very much. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. That was Andy Stern, president of the SEIU and now a senior fellow at Columbia and author of Raising the Floor, How a Universal Basic Income Can Renew Our Economy and Rebuild the American Dream. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the Basic Income Podcast and let your friends know. Have a great day.